From American Public Media, this is Ideas from Aspen. Highlights from the 2010 Aspen Ideas Festival. I'm Kai Rizdahl. You know, there is a battle going on between technology companies. The prize is your digital life. Information is the scarce resource of the 21st century. Anybody who can provide access to information, create information, create all the touch points of information will be the winner. One company has already changed the way we spread information 140 characters at a time. There's a big difference between searching the web, which is about I, it's about me, I want something. And when you are on Twitter, you are open to information that's coming to you. It's it's less ego-driven. Twittering random thoughts into big ideas as we talk tech revolution at the Aspen Ideas Festival. What's in store for you in this digital age? But first, the news. This is Ideas from Aspen from American Public Media. I'm Kai Rizdahl. Our focus for the next hour will be technology highlights from the 2010 Aspen Ideas Festival. But I'm obliged to begin with a confession. I am not a 140 characters type of person. I don't get most of what's on Twitter or the need a lot of people seem to have to share the most routine things in their lives, like what they had for breakfast or how their shopping trip went. But 75 million people worldwide can't be wrong, I suppose. I had a chance to talk to Twitter account holders number one and two earlier this summer up in Aspen. Biz Stone and Evan Williams founded the company four years ago. And while I might not understand why somebody would post about what they had on their scrambled eggs, Ev and Biz do believe those messages serve a purpose. But small ideas can have a big impact. So I'll let you decide, and maybe you can tweet your response. Here's part of a conversation that Biz and Ev did with Walter Isaacson. He's the president and CEO of the Aspen Institute. How did the um, notion of hashtags come along, and did that help change the service? They did. Hashtags, there are a few things, um, interestingly, that the the Twitter community invented and then we embraced in in the product itself. Early, really interesting examples... Um, about how that was used was actually there. So search itself, search of, of tweets was not something we really invented either. And we thought, well, maybe that would be useful. But we, one of the things we did is we've had this thriving developer ecosystem and we created APIs to, to the service from very early on. And they're very open, which helps very open. allow a user community to develop. Right. Products. It lets and software developers plug Twitter into other services. One of the you know, people write desktop clients, mobile clients, mm. all kinds of ways, different ways to use Twitter. And one of the things we offered was what we call the firehose, which is all the public tweets in real time we would, we would send someone. Um, and now we currently um, have deals with Google and Microsoft and Yahoo to, to, to send them all these tweets. And, but one of the early companies that, that took this, and they created a real-time search engine out of it, and it's called Surmise. And since that existed, um, that's what really made hashtags work, because you needed to search people you weren't following. And there was a gas shortage in Atlanta in like November 2008. Oh, wait, yeah. And... Uh, users made up a, a hashtag. They said, uh, pound ATL gas is what you should use. If you find gas, tweet about it, say what it costs, where it is. And make sure you and start make sure with you that. And make sure ATL gas. Cross, yeah. And then people can come, they can search for ATL gas, and, they can, and that, was one of, that was fascinating on many levels. Um, that specific event illustrates kind of the, the core belief that Evan and I and everyone at Twitter has, which is that the open exchange of information 
can and will have a positive impact, not just on that local level, but globally, and that people are basically good, and if you give them a tool to do good, they will. How do you think this changes journalism? I think it changes it in a few ways. Uh, I mean, there's there's citizen journalism going on on Twitter, Um, not because we're asking people to be citizen journalists, but because things are happening and accidents are happening and people are tweeting about them when they see them. The media is using Twitter to source information. Recently, when there was this, uh, there were these riots and this upsets in Bangkok, the, the government-controlled newspapers weren't carrying any information. Uh, the information was getting out via Twitter. So uh, media outlets were able to like, look through Twitter to, to, find out, to try to find out what was happening. Um, Twitter is providing a distribution mechanism for news outlets. Um, you know, a quarter of all of the tweets generated every day contain a link very often to a longer uh, piece that's more, uh, you know, has more context. So someone, someone may tweet earthquake, you know, uh, and then if there's a link, it goes to a, a piece, okay, well, what is the economic impact of the earthquake? What was the magnitude? What, is, what, what else is, ha- you know, all this other stuff. So I think distribution is another, is sort of a third big thing. Did I leave anything yeah. out there? And, and it's not really searchable well on, say, the uh, Google or Yahoo? or Is that good or bad? Should there be a separate search engine if I just want to search what people are uh, you can search, Twittering? You can search on Twitter, I know. Uh, but it's, I think the search has a long way to go. What would be your ideal outcome of a new type of search that would include Twitter? Would it mesh it all with news and blogs and would all be in one undifferentiated mass? I think our ideal out- outcome would just be figuring out what, how it can be most useful. I, mean, I don't have okay. any, any design for but it. But Biz does. There's a big difference between searching the web, which is about I. It's about me. I want something. I'm, a, I'm asking hmm. the search engine to give me something. And when you are on Twitter, you are open uh, to, to information that's coming to you. And it, it's, it's less ego-driven, and you're more sort of open and receptive to, to taking some kind of action. So I would say, just throw out there, that maybe you know, the, the search or discovery of the future comes to you when you need it, where you need it, to help you live your life better or run your and business And it has more smarter. serendipity than search now has? I, I would yeah. think so if you were taking into consideration location, previous tweets, uh, you know, any, any number of signals. Um. When I, if, if I'm tweeting something, do you know my exact location and can you use that or is that a privacy issue? If you give it to us. If you give it to us. Yeah. We, we just started, it's an option, it's opt-in purely and you can tag now a tweet with your exact location or if you want to fuzz it out a little bit, just a neighborhood or a city or now actually a venue. So this is from this restaurant, and the, the coffee cake is delicious. Yeah, we recognize those geo-coordinates match up to this particular uh, yeah. Italian restaurant. We yeah. name the Italian restaurant in your, as your location. Is that going to help you figure out a way to monetize this? It's one aspect that's pretty monetizable. What, why I'm excited about the location stuff is if we get more of that metadata attached to tweets, um, then anywhere you are, you could bring up Twitter and just say, What's happening around me? What are people talking about? Uh, and it could be highly relevant. That you could imagine is very targetable if, if you want to do advertising as well. But I think the things that 
are most monetizable are also the things that are most valuable to users. And so it's about relevance of information. Can SMS be blocked easily by China, Iran, whatever? By China, certainly, because they... Uh, China Mobile is run by the government. So the and, phone yeah. company controls the initial part of the pipeline for an SMS. The thing signal. is, yeah. I think they'd have to shut down the phone service to shut down SMS. Okay. Which would be a rather dramatic thing to do. Yeah. So the thing about SMS that for Internet guys is, is somewhat frustrating, we've spent a few years working on, is you can't just send SMS to every phone in the world because you have a server um, unlike the Internet. You have to make deals with every single carrier in the world and we've made 200 of those so far. And so we have pretty good coverage throughout the world, but China Mobile is not among them. Then how is it working in Iran? Um, Iran, we do have a deal with, um, hmm. with, with one of the carriers that is, covers Iran. Mostly through, in Iran, it's been over the Internet. Mm -hmm. So we, we want to get more thorough mobile coverage throughout the world, but we don't have 100% yet. That's another area where our open approach to making our APIs and our, our technology available to, to smart programmers around the world has been really interesting because even when we're blocked in a country, we still see traffic mm -hmm. coming from that country. And it's because smart folks in that country are figuring out ways to get around those blocks. Mm -hmm. Do you see Twitter as being a platform upon which other people can build apps? And what type of apps might come out? Well, many, many apps have been built on Twitter from, from mobile clients and, and different uses of Twitter. Our last panel is about movies. People have built specific apps to say, what are people saying about the movies that are out right now? And just suck in all the data and, and figure out what the sentiment is. There's actually tens of thousands of apps that have been built. Movies. I know you just did it, but what movie have you made and what movie have you killed recently? <laughs> Twitter is speeding up what has existed for a long time, which is word of mouth. And it used to be that a movie could come out on a Friday evening and they could, they could kind of sail through the weekend because people wouldn't realize that it was a crappy movie until, you know, the weekend was done. Now it's Friday, rolling credits of the first, of the first screening and people saying, this thing sucks. Bruno, Bruno was, was cited as a, like a, a movie that was sort of put to bed by Twitter early. Inglorious Bastards was, was cited uh, as, a, as a film that got immediate, robust, positive word of mouth on Twitter. What is your revenues and what are your future revenues? We're just getting started on the monetization. Uh, the promoted trends and promoted tweets are two products that we now have. And our approach to that is to um, build something that's organic to the system. So promoted tweets are you can... It's a tweet. It's the only ad format is a tweet. You can, you can buy the top sl slot in the search results for a keyword. If people interact with it, it'll stay. If, people, if it doesn't resonate, that's our term for, for how we measure the interaction mm -hmm. with it, then it will fall off. Um, and we just started doing that. It's going very well. We have some more things in the works. But um, in general, we focus the vast majority of the company's attention on, on the technology and the product so far. And thankfully, we have patient and long-term investors like Jerry Murdoch, who, um, who are uh, really supporting that vision. And so you have had offers, I assume, people want to buy. I mean, corporations want to buy you, right? Really? Oh, I thought... <laughs> did, did they go through you? Did, they, did you, did you forward you? us that? You should forward that email. <laughs> have you? The, you know, there are... Uh, 
Yes. People, people call. Yeah. But Go we, on. we would like to run our own company. Thank you very much. Right. That was going to be the follow-up <laughs> question. We, we've shown that Twitter is an important, relevant, useful uh, new form of communication and information network. What we haven't done is proven that we can be a force for good in the world and we can make a lot of money doing it. We need to do the second part of the mission. And we are excited about doing that. And so, and so to stop now would be... And, and furthermore, we believe that we'll be more competitive as an independent company. I think that's usually the case, except in certain circumstances. And so the, the size of the opportunity, we believe, is immense. And um, we really are just getting started on the execution of that. So not just building the business, but really reaching the, the 4 billion people who, who we could potentially reach someday. And, and even the product itself, we've just started on because most of the time we've, we've spent our engineering resources just keeping up with demand. And so there's so many cool things we just want to build. And we're starting to make money, and we have money in the bank, and we're building an amazing team and an amazing culture. And we certainly don't want to stop doing that. You can obviously let them know how they are doing. Just keep your messages to 140 characters, please. Coming up, the next big tech thing that we might all be tweeting about. It's not like the world of print is over and it's all digital. It's actually going to be both. So how do we allow our customers in the future to seamlessly go from the world of physical information to the world of digital information and back to physical? Coming soon to a store near you. Next on Ideas from Aspen from American Public Media. This is Ideas from Aspen from American Public Media. I'm Kai Rizdahl. We're talking about technology, highlights from some of the conversations from the 2010 Aspen Ideas Festival. Biz Stone and Evan Williams just told us about their company, Twitter, and the open exchange of ideas that they believe in. One thing that they said during the interview that I did with them while we were up in the mountains earlier this summer, an interview that you can hear online at the Marketplace website, has really stayed with me. I had asked them to explain how they deal with the sheer triviality of a lot of what people write. That just, for instance, some guy's cat had coughed up a hairball last night. One, my cat coughed up a hairball was important to someone who, you know, the person who wrote it. And maybe they'll occasionally write things that are important to more people. But the real answer is, if you listen to 100% of the phone calls 
that that went on, you'd find out that people talk about what seems like pretty trivial stuff amongst themselves. And unlike the telephones, because the vast majority of tweets are public, you can derive really interesting meaning out of these what individually look like trivial mutterings. I thought of that answer during an interview I did for the festival a couple of days later. I was talking to a guy whose job it is to figure out our technological future, to take those trivial mutterings that Biz Stone and Evan Williams were talking about and turn them into reality. Dr. Prith Banerjee is the head of HP Labs. What that means is that every day he walks into the office asking one question. What if? What if we could invent this kind of software or that kind of display screen, and how could it make life easier or better? We sat down over lunch at the Ideas Festival, and the first question I asked him was what drives his work. At HP and HP Labs, we believe that uh, information is the scarce resource of the 21st century. Anybody who can provide access to information, create information, create all the touch points of information will be the winner. And so we are creating technologies that will allow people to have better lives, businesses to operate better, and the world to just work better. And uh, I'll leave it at that, and I'll right, well, go into more detail. Well, let's, well, let's do that, because I'm not going <laughs> to let you get away with saying, oh, we're going to make the world a better place, right? Give me some examples of success, things that we as a lay audience will know that you guys have done. So today you had to come up to the Aspen Institute to have meetings with a bunch of very, very smart minds. There is clearly value in personal meetings. Some years ago, we actually worked with uh, our colleagues in DreamWorks, we created a technology which we call Halo, which is a way of sort of really high, high-end video collaboration where you bring people in from multiple locations around the world and people communicate as if you are there. I mean, I can see the freckles on your skin and the perspectives that you have. I mean, the audio quality, video quality is phenomenal. So that is an example of technology that came out of HP Labs, which now is a product from, from HP. So last year, we took that concept, and we make that available through a Skyrim technology for seamless collaboration uh, so that you could do those kinds of collaboration just from your laptop or your mobile device. How many times has this happened to you that you are in an airport, you're running around, and you're trying to make a phone call, right? And you would wish to have a really high-quality conference call with your boss and so on, and this announcement is coming up. Flight 108 is leaving from this gate, and there are people running around behind you, and suppose you're trying to do that through a video conference, right? This video phone will not only show Prith, but all the 100 passengers that are running around. Through some automated technology that we have come up at HP Labs, we will remove the crap and only show Prith with a fantastic background. So Mark heard... My CEO thinks I'm sitting in an office when actually I'm sitting in a beach in Hawaii. How about that? Thus improving our lives in society, right? It seems like a lot of what you're doing is not the magic stuff behind the scenes, but it's all about user interaction with the machine, whether it's a, a display or this thing that Mark Hurd's going to see where we hide all the crap, all of that. Actually, that's not true. So, at, so let me back off. I was, just wanted to tease you during a lunchtime conversation about some of the exciting consumer things. We are working on digital commercial print, and the point of that is the, the Wall Street Journal that you read today is a version that every one of you read the same copy and delivered to your hotel. But in the future, we believe that it is important, if we knew Kai and his interest, there would be a custom version of Wall Street Journal for Kai, another custom version for me, another custom version for every one of you. 
That is the future of commercial print. It will go digital where every page is different. And we are working on technologies to bring to our customers that vision. The second theme is that of seamless collaboration. The world of physical information and the world of digital information, they are, they are colliding. And we need, and it's not like the world of print is over and it's all digital, it's actually going to be both. So how do we allow our customers in the future to seamlessly go from the world of physical information to the world of digital information and back to physical? It all sounds just one step short of the march of the machines. That, you know, if you, if you can listen to my voice commands and gestures and sustainability and all this stuff, how soon is it going to be before you guys are bringing com to market computers that know what I think already? I mean, we're, that's where you're going, right? That is exactly that's where, where you're going. going. Today, you do search by typing in keywords. And essentially, why are you typing the keywords? You're trying to find some information, right? You are trying to find the cheapest flight to, to Aspen or, or wherever, right? Which restaurant should go to? Well, why are you looking for a restaurant? Because you're hungry. Imagine... This intelligent infrastructure around you could sense that and help you think about what you'd be needing and the context. Wouldn't that be amazing? And I love it. Uh, okay, uh, so you said, you, I was just going to say, you said amazing. Raise your hand for scary. There's a couple. All right, that's fine. So when you have your conversations with Mark Hurd, when you're running through the airport or sitting on the beach and he doesn't see this behind you, it is his responsibility to say to you, Prit, how are you going to make me money on this? Right. I think of sort of personal computing in the next decade as a window to the world of information. After all, what are you doing with this device? You are either reading a book, reading a magazine, reading a news article, watching a movie, listening to music. That's content. And there are people who are creating content, and there are people that are consuming content. So think of this sort of vision of this window to the world as here is this device that is going to enable producers of content to match up with the consumers of content. And as the information explosion is happening, right, this information is doubling every 18 months, it will get to a point where instead of having one billion videos, you will have one trillion videos. You wouldn't know which video to watch. So wouldn't it be nice if this window to the world allows you to search for just the right content that you are interested in and for the producers of content to be able to send you the content that they would want you to watch as an individual. So the possibilities are enormous. And in fact, so to build this, so instead of using today's devices, we are dreaming about sort of what kind of devices, what kind of form factors, right? Today you think all these devices have to be like a smartphone, which looks like this, or a device that starts with a, well, ends with a pad, right? <laughs> and, and has a form factor like this, or a la laptop. But those are all constrained by the things that we have. It has to have a glass display, right? Which is, and so they have this sort of seven-inch displays. What we at HP Labs are thinking, huh, Suppose you could just get rid of the glass display, use a plastic reflective display that you could have at any form factor. It doesn't have to be square, not a rectangle. It could twist. It could be literally this, the shape of this microphone, right? So then the brain cells get go crazy. So you have a, a five-inch by eight-inch display, and you can fold it, put it in your pocket. Or you can unroll it, becomes a 16-feet by 18-feet thing you can put on a wall. 
So just this display technology would be amazing. Another technology is sort of these intuitive interfaces. Today, I mean, in the past, we used to use keyboards to interact with the com personal computer. Today, people are using touch. In the future, it'll be gestures. I gesture a lot. I used to be a professor. I mean, this is really constraining. If I could walk around, I could really run around. Wouldn't right? you love to see him uncorked, right? <laughs> <laughs> that would be real lunchtime entertainment. But the point is, those gestures that I make, if the computer could recognize those, and now you are looking at me. I'm making eye contact with you. What if the computer could look at that facial expression and the gaze and say, ah, oh, this is really resonating. Half the time, right, when you're doing communication, you need to connect with your audience. And so now imagine this interactive, intuitive device that could do these kinds of things, moving beyond keyboards, beyond touch, gestures, facial recognition, gaze, all kinds of things, and smell and so on. That would be really amazing. That's like the second aspect of the Windows of the world. The third is some kind of technology which would allow people to simplify the information search, right? And we'll do all kinds of things with information management, business intelligence will drive the right information, as I said, location aware and context aware. You want to find out about restaurants in Aspen tonight, right? Not from a standard from our guide or whatever, right? You want, if I, if I had, I have some friends from HP right here, right? Michael Mendelhall, corporate marketing VP, senior vice president is right here. I trust Michael. He's my friend. So if Michael recommends me a restaurant, right, I would go there because there's a high likelihood that's a great restaurant. Using social networking tools through the Facebook friends that we have and the location aware, I would land up in a fantastic restaurant. Let's look at the world of ads. Most of us think ads are bad, right? Because you watch a TV show and these junk ads come at you. Ads are actually good. Ads allow people to tie up the right consumers with the right producers. Sometimes I say, oh, that's a great ad. So suppose I were to go camping this weekend and I did a little Facebook update. I'm going camping and Sears found out about it and they said, would you like to buy a tent from Land's End? That would be a good ad. <laughs> but if I'm not going camping, I don't want to see the ad from Land's End. So the point is, through this smart information management, we will allow you to search for not the right information, but even the right ads. I mean, there is value in matching the right producers and consumers. Finally, there's value in sort of doing deep analytics. So how many of you have bought books from Amazon? All of you, right? So when I bought, bought my last book, Dan Brown's book on Lost Symbol, it recommended me, Prith, you should buy Angels and Demons. Why did it do that? Because it looked at all the consumer interactions on Amazon and said, most of the people who bought this Dan Brown's book would also buy this other book. But that's a profile that is being maintained on a particular website on Amazon. Now imagine if I could look at all the things that you did on Amazon, and then you went on Google and you searched for some information. Then you walked on, went on NewYorkTimes.com and you read this news. And then you went on ESPN.com and you watched this video or, or sports news. If I could profile all those things, I could provide a lot more relevant information to you. Those are some examples. And, and that's the value proposition. All right, but let me ask you this then. So you've got this pad thing by the company that shall not be named. Right. And they've solved a certain set of problems and brought it to market and been enormously successful. Right. You've got 500 engineers working on these things. So what's taking you so long? I mean, 
right? You, you can't tell me Marker is not asking you that question. Right. And we are, we have been working on similar things. Many companies have been working on, on similar devices. So in the shorter term, you will, I, I did not want this to be an HP uh, pitch, by the way. Uh, but you will see in the short term some very interesting products from HP uh, in the space, which combined with this sort of slate-ish kind of a device, and uh, those of you who follow HP, the fact that we bought a company which has an integrated OS called the WebOS, the combination of those, th those things will actually enable consumers a lot more capabilities than you can do with, with the devices available today. But that is the only thing I'm going to say. I was not going to say it right. because right. you asked it. Well, I asked. That's I, fine. I, 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 I had to say. I think what the Kindle has done, right, or the iPad has done, has shown how you can produce very interesting content. I mean, book publishing is going through a massive transformation, right? Essentially, these devices will allow people to read this content electronically that you had to go and buy these books in the future. But let me tell you, I mean, the kinds of things that we're looking at are sort of business innovation things. Today, when you buy a book from Barnes & Noble, a hard copy book, you pay $29.99 for that book. It's a fixed price that you pay, and the publisher gives 15% of the revenue to the author, 20% to the Barnes & Noble, the bookseller, 15% whoever and the public. And so there's a way that revenue, that $30 that you spend at Barnes & Noble is distributed in many ways. Let's imagine some content that you're now distributing through this electronic device of the future. And the value of the device, that, that content goes up or down based on how popular it is, right? So essentially in the book world, there's this thing called that if you are in the New York Times bestseller and every time in the airport, I just go blindly and I buy that thing, right? But I'm still only paying $29 for the New York Times bestseller. Wouldn't it be interesting if the value of the thing that you're buying, right, you buy a copy of a book, right, a single reading copy based on how popular that content is. And who decides the popularity of the content? You all do through social networking. So now wouldn't it be interesting for producers to produce content so that they become more popular, right? If I could drive more popular content, be it books, magazines, music, whatever, right, than somebody else on that device, that window to the world, what kind of new business innovation can, can come out? So those are the kind of questions that we are asking at HBO. But on that last point, I mean, that's kind of what's happening on the web, right? We know on the web who's popular, who's not, and yet we're, we're having the devil's own time monetizing content on the web, journalism specifically, right? Exactly. I mean, so it's, it's not as if Shazam and it's going to happen. So you need to actually, though, the other thing that I didn't talk about was we are working at HP Labs on technologies for this sort of window to the world of information that will allow people to create content in a project called 